They say that a mousetrap is irreducibly complex, meaning you can't take any parts away. It is as simple as it needs to be. You can't take a single part away from a mousetrap and have it still function. You take the clamp away, and the mouse gets away. You know, there's no snap. You take the springs away. You know, there's no snap. The mouse gets away. You take uh, the, uh, the board away that's holding everything together. The thing doesn't function. You take away the cheese. No mouse shows up. It is irreducibly complex. Everything must be there for it to work. And our salvation is also irreducibly complex. All the parts must be there for us to be saved. Uh, We must believe, of course, in Jesus. We must believe that we have sinned against him. That is the problem that needs to be remedied. And And the remedy was provided on the cross where Jesus gave himself for our sins. So now all who repent and believe this good news are saved. You take away any part of the simplicity of that gospel, and it doesn't make sense. It gives an incoherent narrative. And while certainly every part of it has been challenged, uh, there's this unspoken assumption in many that you can become a Christian without repenting of your sins without taking up your cross and following him, as we emphasized last week. As if believing the gospel has no consequences for your life. As if you can go on completely unchanged in all of your same sins. And it's just fine. Nothing to worry about here. And we fleshed that out last week, really. But Jesus finishes that thought with a warning not to ignore this essential part of our salvation. The repentance, the taking up your cross and following him. In verse 27, where he says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and he will repay to each person according to what he has done. A reminder that these are not just empty statements when Jesus says, Take up your cross and follow me. Jesus is coming again one day. And when he does, whether are going to him or him coming to us, uh, there is, um, you know, uh, he will, there will be a judgment upon us by what we have done, how we responded to these claims of his coming, how, in the claims of his gospel. Now, what is this response he requires from us? It's quite simple to take up your cross and follow him through repentance and faith. To follow him. The Bible is so clear on this. Yes, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. But faith never comes alone, it's been said. His good friend works always follows him. They are like inseparable friends. Faith always showing up first, but works never far behind. That's how it all works out in the end. Faith never comes alone. That's the book of James in two sentences right there. It's not about faith versus works. It's about having a faith that has works. They work together as a faith of a genuine believer will always produce good works in time to some degree. 
Now, I'm not going to walk around legalistically assessing how everybody's doing in this category, but you can't have the Holy Spirit of God living within you and live a completely unchanged life. That, that simply cannot happen. But speaking of Jesus' second coming, Jesus finishes this chapter in verse 28 saying, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So somewhere out there in the world, there's a bunch of really old people. Nah, that can't possibly be what this means. Nah, there's, there's something else going on here. And the context really gives us a clue here. This account where Jesus saying this very sentence we just read is found in three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in every one of those accounts, this statement is immediately followed by Jesus talking about, by, by, by the account of his transfiguration. So that gives us a pretty clear indication Jesus wasn't referring to his literal second coming. But this preview of the second coming that we find in chapter 17, where Jesus' glory that he will be revealed at his second coming is on display. We're given this preview, if you will. And lo and behold, some were standing there for both events. Three of them, in fact, who would witness this as we journey into verse 17, uh, chapter 17, sorry. And where in verse 1 it says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. We're not told exactly what high mountain. Some people have speculated which one it was, but we're told these three men were up for it. Now, Jesus did not reveal everything to everyone, we are reminded by this text. Jesus spoke one way to the mixed multitudes, which, were the, which included true, genuine believers, and the Pharisees, and people still questioning him. He spoke one way to those people. He spoke another way to his disciples, and he spoke even more candidly to these three individuals. And so... You know, and revealing to them things they weren't even ready for yet, as we're going to find out by the end of this section. So while they were up there on the mountain, verse 2 says, And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. This must have been quite a sight, truly a sight to remember. We don't even have the vocabulary to express how this must have appeared or how wonderful it must have been to see Jesus in all of his glory like this. This word transfigured before them is the same word that, that we have in English for a metamorphosis, a complete radical change. You know, the closest we have, you know, as I've heard expressed, is the difference between a caterpillar and a butterfly. There is a radical change of identity, a radical outward change that is expressed here. Obviously the same person in both the case of caterpillar and Christ, but we, we, we see what's going on there. The, fa the fact that our first reading this morning, by the way, from Second Peter written decades after this incident, 
Peter is still looking back on this and like, wow, we were up there on the holy mountain with Jesus. You wouldn't believe what we saw. Gives us an indication of just how profound it must have been to see Jesus like this. To get a peek of the glory Jesus had in eternity past before his incarnation coming to us veiled in human flesh. And even as this this preview of how glorious his second coming will be. And it's not only exciting as we look forward, but it helps us make sense of some of the things we read back into uh, the Old Testament. Because this is reminiscent of when the Father gave Moses the tiniest glimpse of his glory. Some of you guys remember that from the book of Exodus. And how Beyond words, Moses was in response. It's reminiscent of Daniel 7 when, with the, the Son of Man being revealed, coming on the clouds with great glory. But oddly enough, Jesus is not alone on that mountain. As verse 3 picks up, and behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Moses and Elijah. Why these two? This is interesting. Out of all the characters in all of biblical scripture, why these two individuals? Well, Moses was synonymous with the law, the first five books of the Bible, which he penned himself. And Elijah had become known synonymously with the prophets. Even though Elijah had never wrote an individual book of the Bible himself, he was very important and was very prominent as a prophet, fulfilling his role as a prophet, leading Israel out of the pagan idolatry that was, you know, prevalent. It was everywhere during that time, reading about him in the book of Book of Kings. And he is revered and referenced all throughout the Old Testament. We're really gonna get into who he was more or less next week. But So you have the law and the prophets represented in this image on the top of the mountain. Which, by the way, when the Israelites referred to the law and the prophets, they were speaking of the entirety of the Bible. It was a common phrase, almost like when we say, well, Scripture says, or God's Word says, or the Bible says. We're speaking of the entirety of Revelation at that point. So these two individuals who when standing together represent all of Scripture, have appeared, and they're talking with Jesus. And if you're anything like me, there's one question that you are so curious about. You get these people together, what are they talking about? What's going on in this conversation? I mean, a favorite conversation starter in our culture is, you know, the... The question F, you can have dinner with any two or three individuals, living or dead, who would they be and why, right? That's a fun question. And let me tell you, to a first century Israelite, doesn't get much better than this. This would be like the top choice. Yeah, give me the Messiah, give me Moses and Elijah, get me in a room with these guys. I want to hear what they would talk about. It's about as good as it would get. And fortunately, we don't have to guess what they would be talking about because we're told 
In another gospel in Luke chapter 9, it tells us that they were discussing Jesus' departure that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Moses and Elijah get together with Jesus the Messiah, and they're talking about the cross. That was his departure. How did Jesus depart from Jerusalem? On a cross. Don't miss how profound this is. (laughs) You have the embodiment of the law and the prophets discussing the cross, pointing towards Jesus as the fulfillment of their ministries. As if to say, Jesus, you are about to fulfill all that we wrote about, all that we testified of, all that we accomplished was pointing to this moment. This is what it's all about. It's all pointing to you, Jesus. Because think about what was the point of the law? The whole point of the law and the Levitical system was to point out our utter inadequacy, our utter inability to save ourselves. That there's nothing within me that can redeem me. I need a righteousness from God apart from the law, as Paul would later write, to save me. And the the, the point of the law was to show that it wasn't within me. I needed that Savior to atone for my sins. What was the point of the prophets? Well, especially during Elijah's time, it was to warn us of the dangers of idolatry because there is no salvation outside of the coming Savior. That you have to stay within him, keep looking to him, looking forward to this Savior that was coming who would save us from our sins. And there's a beautiful poetic message for each of us today as we're reminded of that truth. That no matter where you are when you open up God's word, it's pointing to Jesus in one way, shape, or form. Because the Old Testament, wherever you are, is pointing to Jesus. It's looking ahead towards the cross. And the gospel narratives like we're reading this morning, that's the narrative of the cross. But the epistles that came afterwards are the implications of the cross. How do we now live after Jesus has atoned for my sins? How, are, how do I understand what happened on that cross? It's that, that All of it was pointing to Jesus, no matter what passage we find ourselves reading. One of my favorite scriptures is Luke 24, talking about the... Jesus meeting his two disciples on their way, walking along the Emmaus Road. Because it says there that after Jesus meets with them, Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And man, if I could be present for any conversation in all of scripture... That would be it. Because think about it. We have, some would say, oh, I want to be for there for the Sermon on the Mount. Well, yes, but I have the transcript of that. I don't have the transcript of this conversation. And this conversation is worth more than any seminary degree. How would Jesus explain through all the scriptures the things concerning himself? I want to hear that. Because it all points to him. 
And, you know, that's, that's the beauty of it. No matter where we find ourselves, it is all pointing back to him. And we know to a, we must imagine Jesus must have talked about Psalm 22. He must have talked about Genesis 22 with uh, the offering of Abraham and Isaac on, on Mount Moriah, later found out to be the same place as Golgotha. Hello there, see the symbolism. Or Isaiah 53, that he was pierced for our transgressions, you know, crushed for our sins, the punishment that brought us peace, was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. That must have been in that conversation. But the one thing we learn beyond any shadow of a doubt, wherever we turn, we will find him there. It is literally the central teaching of all of Scripture. Which is why it was wrong for Peter to give all three of these men the equal honor he does in verse 4 where Peter said to Jesus, look, it is good that we are all here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. (laughs) Another gospel points out that he said this because he didn't know what else to say. (laughs) Oh, can we relate to that? (laughs) I've heard it said that a wise man speaks because he has something to say, but a fool speaks because he has to say something. Ooh, we can relate to that sometimes. (laughs) Oh, Peter. Now, some scholars have argued, and I, I really think there's something to this. The timing makes sense that this event happened sometime around the Feast of Tabernacles, which would make sense because this was the time where Israel would temporarily lodge in booths or tents to commemorate their time in the wilderness looking back to that time in Moses where they were wandering for 40 years. Which would make sense of why Peter comes out and says, hey, let's make some tents. Saying to Moses and Elijah, hey, let's make some tents for you guys. You highly favored guests could stay with us a while for the festival. But his mistake was not realizing who the true guest of honor was. Who fully, he failed to fully grasp who it was in his midst. And God the Father graciously corrects Peter in verse 5, where he says, and he was still speaking, when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The first century Jews who who read this, as well as any Christian familiar with their Old Testament, would probably immediately pick up on that word cloud and realize, hold on, there's something to this in our history. They they might immediately think of the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night that also guided them in the wilderness, the, the symbol of God's presence that they were to follow in the wilderness. Or perhaps the cloud of glory that filled Solomon's temple upon its dedication. You know, where it's clear that this cloud was the presence of the Holy Father. And us as Christians reading back on this would immediately think back of Jesus' baptism too, where these same words were spoken, that this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. That voice from heaven chiming in once again. 
And again, what it was, the message coming from this cloud. This, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. The emphasis here being that Jesus is in a class of his own. It's great that Moses and Elijah are here, but this is my son. This is the one whom they were pointing to. This is the fulfillment. Don't confuse the shadow of an object with the substance of the object. Peter, don't you get it? (laughs) Jesus is here now. It's your turn to recognize who it is in your midst and listen to him. And perhaps that's a message that some of us need to hear today too. Jesus stands alone in his glory. Are we ready to listen to him? Let's get practical. If God is calling you today out of your sin, whatever it might be, are you going to listen to him? Or are you going to make excuses for that very sin? If his word says that you're in a sinful relationship, are you going to leave it? Are you going to stay in it? If his his word calls us out, and indeed it does, of calling us out of of being drunk, if it calls us out of adultery with the eyes or gossip or slander, are we going to take up our cross and follow him? Or are we just going to keep making excuses for our sins? Keep socially, uh, making them look more socially acceptable or hiding them when God tells us no? Take up your cross, lay those down, follow me, and repent of those things. Because that's what we truly are called to do. By the way, just as kind of an aside, when I say that we need to take God's word seriously, I mean all of God's word seriously. (laughs) I mean, there's this troubling trend that I've seen of people calling themselves red-letter Christians. Saying that, oh, you know, I'm a red-letter Christian. Just give me the red words. Give me the words of Jesus. If you have a red-letter edition, those are the words of Jesus. And just give me those. That's all that I care about. Well, the problem is, if, if you say that, you're not reading those red words very closely. Jesus took all of the scriptures literally and seriously. He said that, uh, he, I mean, he referenced nearly all of the Old Testament books, citing so, vast swaths of the Old Testament. He said just chapters ago in the Gospel of Matthew that not a, not a stroke of the pen would disappear from the law until all was fulfilled. Now, Jesus took his his Old Testament quite seriously. It was all important to Jesus. <laughs> you know, I have a friend of mine who said he wants to make a very special Holy Spirit edition of the Bible, he says. Special Holy Spirit edition, where, get this, all the words of Scripture that are authoritative and inspired by God will be written in black ink. Think, let that settle in for a second. (laughs) Because in case you didn't realize, that's the same edition of the Bible that you are currently reading from. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. It's all important. 
It's all breathed out by God. It's all of his words. And coming back to our text, the reaction of the disciples to this powerful display of God's presence is one that, frankly, I pray that we all experience to some degree in our hearts. Where in verse 6 it says that when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Now, what does that mean? Well, look, God's presence can be a terrifying thing, even to the righteous. We think of Isaiah, who in in his book, in chapter 6, he says, when he has this vision of the throne room of God, he says, woe is me, I am undone. Just completely overwhelmed in God's presence with the awareness of his sins, the awareness of how short he has fallen compared to God's glory. And when we are confronted in our sin before God's holy standard of holiness, it can appear overwhelming at first. But to make sense out of all the fullness of this narrative, you know, Gosh, I guess it was almost three years ago I did a sermon on the fear of the Lord where we really dove into what this means. And, you know, to summarize it into one short pithy statement, we all ought to have a reverential awe and fearful hesitation to disobey our Heavenly Father. We ought to have a reverential awe of God and a fearful hesitation to disobey Him. So to get practical with that, many of you guys know my earthly father. Many of you guys have met my dad. And as you could surmise, his presence in the home wasn't, I would describe it as terrifying. That's not the first word that comes to mind. But he does have a quiet strength about him. That the more you know him, the more you understand about that. And that quiet strength that he had, (laughs) where in my youth, as I was contemplating getting into trouble with a couple of buddies of mine, that that little voice in the back of my head that said, well, what if dad finds out, was enough of a deterrent. I wasn't living in fear my whole life, but it was enough to deter me. I did not want to displease him in that regard. And God, and God, this whole theme of having a fear of God or the fear of the Lord is about developing that kind of relationship with God. Not one where we're terrified of Him, but one where we are so reverently in awe of Him and aware of how glorious He is that we're going to be hesitant, fearful even, to disobey Him, to wander willfully astray. However, the reason I am not not terrified of my earthly father is the same reason why I'm not, at the end of the day, terrified of my heavenly father. Because my relationship with each of them is not defined as adversarial. I am not enemies with either my earthly or heavenly father. But our relationship is defined by love where even as Peter is feeling this holy sting of the correction here, he is greeted in the best possible way in verse 7, where it says, But Jesus came 
and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. <laughs> Jesus is the Jesus is the reason why we can stand before a holy and perfect Father, a holy and perfect God with no terror, without that overwhelming feeling. Because Romans 5 tells us that even though we were, by nature, enemies of God before we were saved, by nature we were enemies with Him, we now have peace with God through through how? Through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Through His atoning work on the cross, we now have peace with God, having been justified by faith. That's why the cross is so central. There was no other way to make this possible without the cross. Nothing else could radically change our identity from being enemies of God to being friends with God, as John 15 tells us. And we're reminded here that even as we take up our cross and inevitably fall back into our sins, none of us are perfect, even as we backslide, it is Jesus who is the one inviting us to stand before him again. The best news you can receive when you fall down before a holy and perfect God is to see Jesus offering his hand, inviting you back up, inviting you saying, have no fear, having that very thing that we are terrified of, our sins and their consequences, having been forgiven by him. It's been said that the law accuses, the prophets rebuke, but Jesus forgives. That is the good news this morning. Jesus alone has made atonement for our sins. And even as we gather together on a day like today, we don't worship Moses and Elijah, but we do worship Jesus. Even when Moses and Elijah are read from the scriptures, it's God that we worship in response to it. Because he alone is worthy of our of all glory, honor, and praise. Thanks be to God. Amen.